When it comes down to it, we all want the brand we're building to be a household name. On the Whole Brand Podcast, we unpack the four key elements that create a whole brand. Your internal culture, your customer engagement, your marketing and messaging, and your visual identity, and they all start with your why. Each week, we cover one of the key elements with a brand leader, unpacking their why and what we can learn from where they are today. Together, let's make your brand a household name. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us on the Whole Brand Podcast here. Uh, it's, uh, it's just a joy to get to see your face again and get to chat with you. <laughs> it's good to see you as well, Ian. We've known each other for a long time, so uh, grateful to be, uh, be able to be on the podcast and, uh, and uh, share what, some of the things we've learned. Absolutely. Well, one of the things we talk about in the whole brand framework is that each of us kind of have a why for what we do. Um, and I think that leads a little bit from the story of how we got to where we are. So I'd love to hear how you came to be at Forrester and, uh, and do the work that you do. And, and why do you keep coming back to it all the time? <laughs> yeah. So just to, just to be clear, sort of who I am, I am a research analyst with a company called Forrester and, uh, uh, we're an independent market research firm. So, you know, we, we don't, we're not sponsored by any brands, you know, we're not, uh, our work isn't, our research isn't sponsored by brands. It is, uh, it's totally independent. So I get to tell people, share with people, you know, what we've learned and what I think. Um, but I've been with Forrester for about 12 years, which is a long time. Um, and what drew me to this type of work, uh, first of all, you know, being an analyst is an interesting type of role, which I'll get to in a second, but, uh, what brought me to this area of employee experience and studying this area was uh, was working inside of Silicon Valley companies for so long, and um, mm. and you know just seeing the differences in leadership style, seeing the differences in how people were, uh, differences in you know what what circumstances would motivate people, what what would make people burn out, what would what would happen when people were burned out for you know days, weeks, months, or years? What did that look like, and and how could they recover from that? Just the human aspects of being inside a, uh, a fast-moving organization were fascinating to me, and I saw a lot of things, a lot of practices that were really not good. <laughs> you know, really, and I, you know, um, you know, when I started Forrester, I was looking after you know some technology areas, but I was on the phone with CIOs, and uh, and they were asking really good questions. I mean, by the time somebody's waited for a couple of weeks to get on our calendars. Um, you know, they've usually exhausted Google, uh, so their questions are pretty good, and, and it gives us kind of good visibility into the edges of what people understand. And so we'd talk about some sort of policy decision or change that they were going to make, some significant thing that was going to have an impact on people. And we'd get to the end of the call, and if we had time left over, I could ask them, so you've got the responsibility for the productivity of 100,000 people, yeah? And they'd say, wow, <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I guess that's true. I'd say, okay, well... Tell me what you know about how this is going to affect their motivation and um, and willingness to bring their best selves to work and do great work every day. And they'd say, I have no idea. Uh, I wish I knew. Um, you got any data? <laughs> At the time, the answer was no. But now the answer is yes, we do. So it was a long answer to a short question, but that's kind of how I arrived here. It was just uh, being fascinated in this whole uh, area of human behavior in an organizational setting. And uh you know, what was it that makes people show up and bring the best of themselves every day? I think that that story, too, is just a good testament to the research you're doing in that you were in one role and you saw a need and that caused you to change into this role. And, and I mean, that's just a brilliant way for organizations to look at it. It's like just because someone's in a specific role, if they're identifying needs and problems that customers are having, why would we pigeonhole somebody to stay in one area 
when they have the, the ability to help other people and change uh, change organizations uh, for the better in a different role. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a that's a good testament to the work you're doing within the story of how you got there. Well, it's a testament to the company too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, the Forester gives us a latitude to, to pursue things that we see are interesting. Uh, we can get buy-in for it. So, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, that's good. So. Being a research uh, analyst, how is it? Because well, you know, we all have to do research a lot of times in in our roles and things like that. Uh, how how do you get started on a project like that? What is what is the the kicker, and what are the kind of the initial steps that lead into into you uh, putting together these studies? So a lot of it comes from our interactions with our clients. You know, <clears throat> we. Um, as we start to put pieces together, we have a lot of conversations with a lot of people, hundreds of conversations every year uh, with people uh, who all have good questions. And it really it sort of reveals to us uh, what's missing, mm. <laughs> you know, what people really sort of would benefit from from having more insight into. And uh, and also, you know, keeping ahead of trends, you know, the kinds of technologies that are being released, um, what we're learning about customer experience as well. We have a huge customer research practice or customer experience research practice. All these things inform uh, how we think about what we want to tackle, you know, for a year. And, you know, you, we try to make up a research plan that lasts for a year. But in reality, everything changes so quickly that, you know, you only have maybe a 10% chance of getting all those things done in a given year because there's going to be other things that need to be done. So hmm. the way that I think about this is I start with a question. I start with something that's a gap in people's knowledge and understanding that I think is going to be high value. If we write about it and we can answer these questions and uh, that people are going to find useful. Um, and then we start with, okay, you know, we start with a hypothesis or even a few hypotheses and, um, and then figure out how to go about finding out the answers to the questions, almost like you would do with any, any kind of scientific research. And uh, so we look at data. Uh, we do a lot of interviews, do a lot of interviews with folks. Sometimes we engage in exercises like focus groups or, journey mapping or other things that will help reveal things to us. Um, but it's about, uh, it's about gathering as much information and insight as we can and putting the piece together, looking at it. Sometimes I put together a mind map, you know, where I, uh, I draw everything out and just kind of throw everything up there and then I sit back and look at it for a while. And I, I often am collaborating with other analysts as well. So there's great input from them, their, their insight and experiences. And uh, we put it together into a document, into a structure, you know, and um, write about it, develop the graphics, throw in, the, you know, put in the pieces of data and notes from interviews. I take a, I grab a lot of quotes from the interviews that we do, and uh, and put those in. And so that's how a research project comes together. And sometimes it takes, you know, sometimes it takes two weeks, sometimes it takes a whole year, <laughs> depending on how much work you have to do, right? Yeah. Totally. Well, and this wasn't a question I included in there, but uh, I would love to, to, to ask just how best do organizations use this type of research? You know, I'm, I'm sure it's one of those where there's lots of people out there who are just going, I don't know what I'd do with this. Uh, and so how, in your mind, like when someone either comes to you or is, is going to get behind the paywall at Forrester, uh, how do you recommend they best interact and use this information that you guys are putting together? So lots of ways, uh, but I'll, I can tell you the way that I engage with our clients most often. It's through what we call advisory, um, mm. where their executive leadership team, you know, had, they're holding a maybe an a employee meeting of some kind or a team team meeting of some kind, uh, and they're looking for someone from the outside to provide perspective uh, to sort of help 
help them gain insight into areas and things that they uh, they don't have a lot of knowledge of or they're only scratching the surface of. And so I'll do that. I'll come in and deliver a pretty high impact one or two hour session. Sometimes they want me to come in for an entire day and train a whole wow. bunch of staff on basics of you know human centricity and employee experience in the workplace. My area of expertise here is the organizational behavior and psychological research behind a lot of this. And a lot of that's totally counterintuitive. People just don't know about it. And when they hear about it, they're like, oh, wow. Uh, okay, you know, this makes sense. It totally makes sense, but I never thought about it that way, you know? <laughs> so that's, and sometimes the best use of an analyst is to come in and tell the executive leadership team something that everybody else has either tried to mm-hmm. and failed or is afraid to uh, because they know it's going to fly in the face. A lot of the, for example, return to work initiatives. Yeah. You know, um, I, I get the question a lot from our clients, uh, from executives. How, how can we make our people want to come back to the office? And my response to that is that's the wrong question. Uh, First question is what is the mo- what is the, what is the environment that you can provide that is going to allow people to be maximally effective in their work mm. for you and in their careers and otherwise. And, um, if you solve for that, it doesn't matter the location. Um, and it, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it does. Um, but I, I try to encourage them to start with the right questions and then go from there. Um, and sometimes they listen, sometimes they don't. And um, when they don't, sometimes they're back in six months or a year saying, hey, that didn't work. I wish I'd have paid attention to what you told me. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes we give them advice and that didn't work, right? So uh, yeah. that's true too. <laughs> but yeah. I, I always used to say, you know, being a consultant is, uh, is one of the greatest scams because you, you pay me to come in, not listen to me, and then pay me to come in and tell you the same thing a year later. So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. In a little different way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's that's great, and I, that's such a great topic too. That the, the return to work stuff. We work a lot in the commercial furniture industry, and so that's been mm-hmm. a, a conversation that all these folks are doing. Is how do we create these environments that that breed, you know, not only productivity but collaboration, uh, and and breed a reason to come back to to work, so that that it's a it's an environment people want to be in. And um, but I think that's a that's just a great question. How do you start with the correct question instead of starting with this is what we want. It's okay. Is what we want actually good for our people? Uh, and I right. think that's a great, a great way to start any project. really. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's what's, what's going to be the net result. You have to remember too, that people don't react to things, um, rationally all the time. And the bigger and more ambiguous, the change, uh, they react to it emotionally. Um, and the top question, the first question in their mind is what's going to happen to me? Am yeah. I going to like this new world? Am I going to like this new scenario? Do I trust uh, the leaders that are behind us? Right, those kinds of things. Oh, that's great. So, in this, uh, obviously, th- this is a big topic, and there's a lot of stuff you can and can't share, and things like that. But I'd love to just get some high-level insult- insights into your research. Uh, what are some things that you've discovered in the workplace experience, workplace culture, things that uh, really everyone should know uh, from a high level? Uh, before they engage in in a big initiative or making these kinds of changes in their in their organization or even just looking at their organization wondering if they need to make a change yeah uh, boy I have been so lucky uh, to be able to work with and learn from um, some giants in this industry um, you know, again, I, I mentioned that I, my area of expertise is the organizational behavior and psychological research. Um, maybe the most, probably the most impactful insight that I've learned in all this time of, of doing this work came from a, uh, 
professor at the Harvard Business School. Uh, her name is mm -hmm. Teresa Amabile, A-M-A-B-A-L-E. So I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here <laughs> with yeah. some of the things that, that I've learned. But we spent some time together, and um, and she said, you know, her, her, her contribution to this area was most of what the world thinks we know about what keeps people energized and engaged and motivated mm -hmm. at work is wrong. Um, she found that when she would survey managers and ask them to rank in order of importance what mattered, they would say things like recognition or pay for performance or important work or great colleagues. And it's not that those things aren't important. Of course they are. It's just they're not the most important. And the most mm. important thing, they would consistently rank dead last. And that is being able to, so you have this gap, right? Being able between, you know, what people think and what really is. And, and that is yeah. being able to make prog progress every day in work that they know is important, being able to get things done. When I speak about this, I was in Dallas earlier this week and spoke and gave a keynote to about a thousand people. And I asked the audience at the beginning, how do you want to feel when you leave work every day? Mm -hmm. How do you want to feel? You're walking out of the office, you're on your way to your car, you're walking out of your office at home, you're going to go, you know, mingle with your family. Uh, how do you want to feel? And the answer is universally. I want to feel like I made a difference. I want to feel like I got something done. I want to feel like it was successful. Yeah. Yes. So employee experience peaks when people have good days at work. And, um, you know, there's other factors, of course, you know, if you're an hourly worker, you're not getting paid very well. There's, um, you know, there's, there's other factors that come into play, but the most important, generally speaking, is being able to get things done and have good days at work and being in an environment that's conducive to that. And what do you need to do that? You need to know what's most important for you to work on. You got to have the resources. You got to have access to the information and the people that you need, right? All these things to be able to be successful in this. And you've also got to be good at being able to self-regulate your attention in order to stay focused and get it done. And that's a challenge for a lot of us. Mm. So, you know, just that little piece of being in an environment that is conducive to getting great work done. And, uh, you know, we think about things like automated or artificial intelligence and things like generative AI. Those have the potential to be enormous boons uh, for people's ability to get things done if it's implemented yeah. well. So... Yeah, so I guess in a in a nutshell, that's that's one of the insights uh, that I've yeah. I've learned that I like to share with our clients. Um, and there's much more. We could fill a book with this, but right. Well, yeah. that's your job, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, no, and yeah, I think that true. what's so unique about that is I, I think that idea of like kind of purpose driven work and feeling like you you accomplished or feeling like you actually move something forward. I think a lot of times companies attribute that to just like millennials and Gen Z. It's like, well, they care more about the, the why than, than the, you know, the work that we're doing here. But I think it's interesting to, to hear that that's, that's across all generations. Everybody wants to feel like yeah. they contributed to something in their day. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's just a, it's a mind shift. I think a lot of people need to make. One more thing. Uh, and I agree with you. Um, there's been a lot of work done on uh, intrinsic motivation, right? What motivates us? Mm. Um, and a guy named Dan Pink uh, popularized a lot of the work of uh, that had been done by a scientist named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi originally. Um, nobody can pronounce his name, but people who had worked with him <laughs> just called him Mike. Uh, but anyway, um, what what uh, what they what they learned, what he learned, what what he told, what he sh sh proved to the world was there's really four primary intrinsic motivators. That's what comes from within. First is autonomy, feeling like we've got a mm. say in how the work is going to get done. Second is mastery. We want to get better at whatever it is that we do. Um, and uh, third is purpose. Like we want to feel like it's a, we're, what we're doing is aligned with a, 
we, we're, we feel that the purpose of what we're working toward is important. And then the fourth uh, came later, and that is relatedness. Uh, we want to feel a sense of uh, esteem right, from other people and colleagues. Uh, these are primary motivators. Um, and uh, if you understand those pieces and you learn to look through those lenses and you be can begin to evaluate organizations and look at leaders and so on, it reveals a lot. But this idea mm -hmm. of a sense of purpose is more important to millennials and to Gen Z than it has been to earlier generations. Um, at least the data shows that anyway, but it's a super powerful motivator. When you, when you work for an organization where you believe in the mission and values of that organization, it supercharges you. Um, so yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And we, uh, we talk a lot about our mission statements and, and the idea that most mission statements are, are written to sound good to shareholders. Uh, and that's not a great mission for most people <laughs> working. That's right. uh, and so it's that, how can you actually lay out a mission statement that, that makes people understand what you're doing is, is bigger than just a payout to the, the people who profit off of it, but uh, actually give someone something to work towards. And the beauty of that too, I think is that if you have your mission statement in a way that really shows what you're working for, it's going to weed out yeah. the people who aren't passionate about that and they're not even going to work for you, which is automatically just going to improve productivity and, and workplace culture and all those things. Yeah. Self-selection. Yeah. Yeah. That's well, right. that's great. Was, was there anything in this research that, that kind of surprised you as you got into it? Oh, wow. I'm surprised every day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised by the fact that uh, such great information about leadership and en employee engagement and everything is out there, but yet there are still executives and CEOs who say, yeah, I don't care about any of that. Um, mm. You know, this is, this is how I do it. This is how I think. And they suffer the consequences for it. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, it's just, it's just interesting. Um, you know, I've had leaders, um, say, yeah, you know, we were doing an employee survey, but it just felt like people were complaining. So we stopped doing it. And <laughs> really, so basically you're fine with driving down the highway in the middle of the night with your headlights off, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're going to hit something. You don't know what it is until you hit it. Right. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nicer to know? And so that you could make, uh, make the changes you need to. Um, and sometimes I say, I hadn't thought about it that way. You're right. And sometimes I say, well, you know, so yeah, there's some, I think what surprises me is, uh, the degree of willful, willful ignorance that we run into, uh, you know, yeah. with, with people just being so set in how they think about things. But also what surprises me is um, how, and this is in a really good way, as I've worked with organizations all over the world, both in, in government and uh, in private sector, by and large, everybody is trying to do the right things. Um, yeah. You know, they have, they have integrity. Um, you know, it's it's really common, I think, in popular cultural culture to deride, you know, corporations and so on. And sure, there are some who have done, you know, done damage and done bad work. But by and large, um, these leaders are really trying to do the right things um, by their people and by their customers. Mm -hmm. And um, and they're really looking for insights to try and understand how to do that well. And that's really encouraging to me. You know, when I think about the state of society, I, I think about the state of, of business and, uh, and organizations and so on uh, all over the world. I, I this this really gives me, um, you know, a great deal of hope. Another one that I'll mention quickly is sort of a surprise. Yeah. Well, it wasn't a surprise. It was a it was, surprise is not the right word. It was a um, a wonderful reinforcement. Um, hmm. I was doing some work for a federal government agency uh, that, uh, that regulates banks and um 
I asked the people at the beginning of the workshop, I said, so why do you get out of bed and come to work every day? You know, what is it that, that brings you here? And they said, um, universally, they said, we, we want a well-functioning banking system for this country. We want to make sure that when people have money in a bank, that, that it's safe, but also mm. that the banking system works because it's so critical. And, um, and everybody could elaborate you know, a lot on exactly why they felt that was important. And I thought that was wonderful. You know, we have this image of, of government, government employees, I think, that's given to us by, you know, who knows, various sources. Um, you know, that somehow they're they're not engaged or that somehow they're not doing great things or they're not motivated. And that's just absolutely yeah. not true. Um, they are doing amazing work. They're brilliant people. And um, and they're really trying to do the right things. And so they're not surprises, um, but they are they are really good reinforcements that give me hope about the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. You know, that's uh, I feel like I tell my children all the time, you need to assume the best of each other when they're talking to their brothers yeah. and sisters. And, and I think that's, that's right. We've lost that ability to realize that, like, we, we are all really trying to do this. And granted, there are some some, you know, outliers in, in every situation. But but if we can assume the best, that's going to trickle down, uh, you know, through every organization. I often get asked, you know, what what are what are some tips that you have for me to be better in my career? And then I give them two things. Uh, it is if you can develop the habit of unconditional positive regard, right? Mm. That is number one. Uh, so you know, when you look at other people, just assume you know un unconditional positive regard, and then also always assume positive intent. You know, you might experience somebody as a bully, or you might experience something negative about that person and interactions. But if you assume positive intent, you can look at it through a new lens. Maybe they're feeling anxious. Um, maybe the way that they're showing up is because they are worried about something. And um, if you can develop empathy around that, uh, you it gives you the opportunity to interact with, with people in an entirely new way. And um, be totally transformative to how you, you know, how you are viewed as an employee and uh, in your opportunities for advancement in your career. Oh, the other, third thing I always say is be impeccable with your word. When you tell somebody mm -hmm. you're going to do something and when you're going to do it, do it without fail. Um, and uh, if there's going to, if you need something more than you thought you were going to need, ask for that early um, and, and yeah. you know, be interacting say, Hey, look, I, I know I said, we we're going to be able to do this, but we we're running into this. Be transparent about that, but you know, be impeccable with your word. I think that's probably the three biggest things that I can give people. I have one more. Um, yeah. Fourth is, you know, I see a lot of people who believe that their capabilities and what they know and uh, their circumstances are fixed and that there isn't anything that they can do about it. And they begin to see themselves as a victim. It's unbelievable how much control you actually have uh, over your circumstances that you may not realize. Um, one of my mentors in this research is a guy named Stefan Falk, uh, F-A-L-K. He just wrote a book called Intrinsic Motivation that's out on, on uh, you know, various places where you buy books. It's all about this. It's about developing a growth mindset um, and mm -hmm. just getting past those things that we think are limitations. And uh, I think that's really powerful as well. So, yeah, yeah nothing that, is fixed. Yeah. <laughs> You have agency over your, your life and your outcomes. And, and yeah, we, we have to view that. that. Those four points, that was a mic drop moment right there. That's, uh, <laughs> everybody can take that to the bank, whether it's talking about culture or how you treat your employees or, or your own work. That's the, those were great, David. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, and I think, I think you may have just answered our last question here in all of that, <laughs> but is there anything else you can think of where, uh, if a business is really trying to, 
uh, figure out how to better take care of their employees, how to better prevent burnout, how to better recuperate people from burnout, those kinds of things. Uh, what do you think is your biggest piece of advice for anyone who is working in uh, improving their workplace experience? There's, a, uh, there's two answers to that question. One of them is what do you do organizationally? Um, and then the other is what do you do with individuals uh, who, are, who are feeling burned out? Organizationally, the answer to that question starts with listening. Um, it starts with, you know, your surveys, your interviews, your other things that you're doing together, insight into how people are feeling, what's going on, what are the things that are statistically that we can value, that we can demonstrate are contributing to burnout or are contributing mm -hmm. to low engagement. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, <laughs> if, I, if I could summarize where we most commonly see the problems when we do the work with organizations around this, it's with managers. Um, mm -hmm. You know, managers who are bullies uh, or who manage up and kick down or, you know, will withhold withhold resources from people in order to control them. Um, you know, those are the kinds of managers that you need to identify um, and you use your surveys and things like that to do that um, and either coach them and help them get better because it could be anxiety driven. You have to give them unconditional positive regard as well, but you got to get them past whatever it is that they're doing that's destructive and toxic and uh, help them get through that. So that's one. What do you do with individuals, though, who are who are feeling burned out? Well, there's always a reason. Um, the uh, the strongest predictors of burnout in our EX index survey are lack of recognition for hard work and accomplishment, and recent organizational changes that affect them have them feeling down. Those are the top two. They're big. So uh, recognition's a big one. You know, helping people feel uniquely seen and valued for who they are and what they contribute is enormous. I can't overstate how important that is. Um, and as managers, we're, we're busy. We've got a lot going on. We don't always have the energy to feel like we want to give anything more to anybody else. They're already bleeding me dry, right? Why would I want to give them something else? You've got yeah. to overcome that. And you have got to be able to give people that, uh, that reinforcement for what they're doing. Otherwise, they're going to start to wonder if it's really worth doing all that work um, and start mm -hmm. to disengage. But also organizational changes. Um, when people feel like they have become a victim of an organizational change rather than a beneficiary, it's going to cause yeah. them to go, hmm, um, that really hurt. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it takes industrial strength resilience to overcome that. Um, the percentage of people in your workforce who have industrial strength resilience is probably in the low single digits. <laughs> so, um, you know, you need to, uh, you need to, if you see people who after some time have just started being, you know, not putting out as much you know, effort as they were and they're being disengaged. It's time for a conversation, not about, hey, you know, well, how come you're not performing better? Yeah. It's about, hey, what, ha what happened here? What have we done uh, that, has, uh, that has caused you to feel differently about working here? That, that, you know, that way you're showing ownership of it. And they may say, oh, it's nothing here. It's, you know, stuff that's happening. You know, okay, you know, they'll give you that answer. Or they may say, you know, I really had a bad interaction with this, this executive over here, this leader over here, and I really feel deflated by it. Mm -hmm. Ah, okay. Well, so let's have a conversation about that. How can we help? What do I need to do? Um, and, uh, and help get that person through it. And the only time that it's not recoverable that I found is when they have developed contempt for the organization. So if they yeah. have gone past just being upset and angry and they are actually more likely to do harm than good because they have contempt for the organization, that's something that's probably not recoverable. Um, but everything else up until that is recoverable with good conversations and with you know following through on what you commit to as a leader to that employee, they're going to feel like, wow, um, you know, and, and they'll get back in the game. So. Long answer to a short question, Ian, but those are some of the things that I've seen.
No, that's great. And that is invaluable yeah. insight. I mean, I think everyone can, can learn from, from this conversation and, uh, I am so grateful for you sharing this with us, David. And, uh, I think this is honestly one of the most valuable episodes we've, we've had and, uh, you know, workplace culture, workplace experience is such a big, uh, such a big thing right now. Uh, and it's an important it thing because it, it affects everything else. It affects families. It affects, you know, customers, all, all the, the various elements. And, uh, uh, and so I think the work you're doing is incredibly important and, uh, just very humbled and grateful you, you came and shared some of this with us today. I'm honored to be asked and you're right. It has a huge impact on things like that, but also customer outcomes, you know, yeah. it's engaged employees who are at a good place emotionally that provide great customer service. Exactly. <laughs> and, and design great products that people want to buy. Right. So, yeah. yeah, it's really, it's not, as, as Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines said, uh, it's not one of the enduring green mysteries of all time. It's just the way that it works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, keep it all simple, right. stupid. That's the... <laughs> right. yeah, that's great. So, well, David, how can folks uh, find more about the work that you're doing specifically and the work that Forrester's doing as a, as a whole? Where can they go to find some of that information? Well, if you're working inside of a large organization, chances are you already have a relationship with Forrester. So you can find the person internally who uh, who holds the Forrester uh, relationship. Um, chances are they're going to be the, the head of marketing or the head of IT. Um, and uh, or you can go to the Forrester website and um, and you know see what we've got there. A lot of blogs, a lot of stuff is outside the paywall. So um, and I'm joined on this in this research by a team of really great people: uh, Betsy Summers, Katie Tynan, James McQuivy. Jonathan Roberts, J.P. Gounder, these are all really good analysts that have a lot of knowledge and experience in this area. You can follow them on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter. <laughs> you can follow them on LinkedIn. Uh, and they're really good, insightful people. So, And, uh, yeah, I'm lucky to be among them. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you again for, for your time today. And, uh, and uh, we look forward to the, the future of this research and, uh, and the future of organizations who are applying it. 